Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Locked In Science for another week. This is 30 minutes of Locked In uh, Science, just as the name suggests, while we are uh, still in some version of lockdown or COVID-related separation. Thank you so much for being with us. And this week on the show, I have a bit of COVID news for you, actually, Stu. Really? Yes, I do. Uh, sometimes I don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes I do. But this week, the CSIRO have uh, put out some new research around how long the SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that gives the disease COVID-19, how long um, it can last on certain surfaces. So we're talking on banknotes, on stainless steel, on plastic and you know vinyl and also on glass and it's actually a lot longer than we originally thought you know about six months ago so it's sort of changing probably going to be changing the way that we the, that we think about surfaces um, especially in in relation to, to temperature so coronavirus sticks around for a lot longer around 20 degrees than it does around 30 degrees or, or um, especially in 40 degrees. Um, Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, I thought I'd have a bit of a look at some of your favourite things to happen every year. The Nobel Prizes. Uh, oh. Some of them have been announced. <laughs> Great. And the uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics and the Nobel Prize for Chemistry have been announced in the last few days. Um, there's still a few other ones, but not, not really science. All the sciencey ones are kind of done now. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll, we'll just focus on the um on the sciencey ones, shall we? Yeah, yeah. So you know the peace prize, it's all it's all well and good, but it's not really our it's not really our scene. Um, but yeah, so I thought I'd look at who who won the Nobel Prize for Physics this year and who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, and they're pretty amazing discoveries that are being recognised. Particularly, the Physics Prize went sort of split three ways except not equally three ways. So someone got half of it, two other people got a quarter each, which is kind of a bit of a... The guy who got the half published his findings a really long time ago. It's it's quite amazing that they've recognised him now, especially because we know, we know that you can't get a Nobel Prize posthumously, so you've got to give it to people while they're still alive. And I kind of go, you kind of left it a bit long, guys, <laughs> to get to, to recognise this physics achievement but look he he got it in the end so yeah i'm going to talk about who they are and and what they discovered and why they've been recognized and it is pretty groundbreaking stuff that they've worked towards for most of their lives in some cases oh fantastic i do love the nobel prizes especially when um there is an incredible gender representation which doesn't always happen but this year it seems to have happened and we've got women represented in both physics and chemistry so um can't wait to hear more about that Stu. all right on with the show 
So it is it is the time of year for awards. It's awards season and some of the biggest awards of the year are the Nobel Prizes. And I guess if the uh if the Ig Nobel Prizes, which we talked about the other week, are the, the Razzie Awards, <laughs> then I guess the Nobel Prizes are the uh the Academy Awards right. for for achievements in in, in various fields, but particularly of interest to us are the science categories. You know, unlike things like uh, the Oscars or, or the Razzies, the Nobels can recognise people for achievements from years gone past. And it's not necessarily, you know, science from the last year. And this is one of the things about science, I guess, is that it, sometimes it takes a long time for people to recognise what an achievement someone has uh, sort of come up with. So... Uh, first of all, I'll look at the physics prize. And the physics prize, as I said in the intro, it's an interesting split. Half the prize has gone to one scientist and a quarter each to two <laughs> others for a related but different discovery. I want to know how they're going to divvy up the trophy. Look, I, I'm pretty sure they're talking about the 10 million kroner prize money for okay. the Nobel Prize. They probably... They probably all do get a medal. I don't think they're like gold chocolate coins where they can just <laughs> split them up amongst themselves. I think they each get one to take home with them. So the money they, they can they can each they, yeah they can they can buy many many chocolate um, gold covered chocolate coins with with that amount of money. Yeah, that's right. So Roger Penrose could have probably retired fifty five years ago <laughs> because that. That was when he published an article that did something lots of people have wanted to do for over a century, and that was prove Einstein wrong. <gasps> now, what? What a what a what a goal for your for your <laughs> physics career to prove Einstein wrong. Um, so, in 1965, he published a paper that demonstrated that not only did black holes really have the ability to form in the universe. He also also showed all the calculations necessary to show how they actually do that. Now, this is regarded as the most significant work on relativity since Einstein published his work in the early 20th century. And for that work, Penrose has been awarded half of this year's Nobel Prize for Physics. But you might be wondering, well, how does it prove Einstein wrong? Mm. So even though it's a consequence of the theories of relativity that Einstein came up with, old Albert never actually thought that a black hole was a possibility. Right. What what he actually thought, he considered them to be something of an anomaly in the physics calculations, and he didn't think they were likely to actually exist in the universe. So, you know, luckily Roger waited until 10 years after Einstein had passed away before he published his mm-hmm. his, his groundbreaking uh, paper and proved Einstein wrong, that they did actually exist. But it is, you know, it is basically um, really good, solid evidence that the theories of relativity are very accurate um, because Einstein couldn't comprehend of such a weird thing as a black hole with a singularity at its centre throwing all the laws of physics out the window. So... You know, it was a, it was a pretty good um, indicator that that Einstein's theories are actually correct. Now, 
The second half of the Physics Nobel Prize this year was split two ways between Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Gez for the independent discovery of something really heavy, man. (laughs) Um, So they both led teams in the 90s that discovered, and, and this is quite hard to get your head around, discovered a mass of 4 million stars packed into an area about the size of our solar system. It seems like too many stars. That's a lot of stars lot of in stars. the same space that that we've basically got, you know, uh, filled with a couple of planets. That's that's some pretty hot stuff going on in that little region that they've been investigating. Four million stars, right? What is going on? So they're being sucked in by an extremely massive but exceedingly small object which has been shown to be very likely to be a supermassive black hole mm. around which our galaxy has formed. So for their work, their independent work, they both basically arrived at the same conclusion at around about the same time and basically dedicated their careers through the 90s and into the 2000s to showing what was causing this this massive cluster of stars in the centre of the galaxy. So they both published about this in the late 80s or was it the early 90s? When was it? They, they published multiple papers with their research teams throughout the 90s and into the 2000s showing similar findings. Um, they weren't working against each other or anything like that, but they were independently arriving at their conclusions so that they were both recognised as, as contributing to that sort of discovery um, that there is very likely to be a supermassive black hole in the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, so... Uh, also, now, now we'll move on to the Chemistry Prize. And the chemi- Chemistry Prize is uh, a contentious one in some ways. The um, the Nobel Prizes are awarded in Sweden, Sweden being part of Europe. And the science that's been uh, rewarded in the Chemistry Prize, in the Nobel Prizes this year, is has led to a technology that's basically illegal in Europe. <laughs> so the Euro- European countries giving an award for something that is not really something you can do in Europe, right. which is pretty uh, interesting. Go um, on. So the I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Prize, I'm intrigued. The prize was shared by researchers Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer A. Doudna, who discovered an interesting hack for a unique bacterial mechanism. So Charpentier discovered in a streptococcus bacteria the ability to chop up viral DNA to prevent it from infecting bacterial cells. And she published her discovery in 2011. After that discovery, she then teamed up with Jennifer Doudna and together they discovered the so-called gene shears or genetic scissors that that uh, Charpentier had discovered could be reprogrammed to target any DNA sequence. So our listeners would would know this as CRISPR. That is exactly right. So the technology of CRISPR, which is short for, and here's a good trivia question: clustered regularly into space, short palindromic repeats. That's what CRISPR <laughs> is short for. That allows 
shortcuts to gene editing in pretty much any organism. It's not restricted to bacteria. It can be applied, you know, to viruses. It can be applied to bacteria. It can be applied to plants, animals, potentially even humans. Um, so that kind of opens the door to genetic modification at a much lower cost and much faster modification of genes in everything from crops to livestock and possibly even targeting human diseases. So the technology is being described um, by me mainly as the Napster of biology. Uh, (laughs) It really changes the whole face of plant and animal breeding and medicine in a way that is potentially difficult to regulate, just as Napster came through and wiped out copyright as some sort of, you know, concept that people were adhering to. Um, I think CRISPR is kind of the kind of disruption that, that um, of that level that's going to change the face of biology and biological research as well. Now, that throws up some problems for the EU, of which Sweden is a member, as the CRISPR technology has had heavy restrictions placed on it since the middle of 2018. It basically has the same rules applying to it that all other gene modification technology has. So even though the CRISPR technology is just editing existing genes within an organism, it still has the same um, level of testing that is required for you know, uh, transgenic organisms and that sort of thing. Is that even for use in the lab for, for people to use CRISPR, that those, those regulations apply in the EU? I think it's basically for, uh, you know, every research project we need to get approval and go through those approval processes. You would not be able to release any products produced mm. with CRISPR technology without those extra hurdles to go through. So it, it's interesting that it's been, you know, rewarded by a, a member of the EU, but you can't produce anything with it in the EU. So that's kind of um, uh, a bit odd that science can be celebrated and outlawed at the same time. Um, but look at, you know, I kind of think at the moment everyone's currently distracted with the potential of one particular genetic mutation from a virus to completely change the world for the worse. Um, And this technology kind of offers hope against even things like novel viruses, as that's exactly where this this, uh, technology came from, is from humble bacteria fighting viruses. So, you know, it's it's quite possible that in the very near future, uh, we might all benefit directly from this um, technological breakthrough. And it's a well-deserved Nobel Prize for chemistry. So, Stu, do you remember a few months ago, you know, they might feel like years, but they were months, we were talking a lot about COVID-19 transmission through touch and through surfaces and there was some uh, research that came out about how long COVID-19 virus particles, the SARS-CoV-2 particle, can survive on different types of surfaces, right? I think we even did a, did a story on it. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a big, you know, sort of a big bit of a panic at yeah. the time. Um, even saying that, you know, they're finding it weeks later mm. in, you know, the, the Ruby Princess and all this sort of That's stuff. Right. And, um, 
people were getting a bit paranoid about how long it would last on different surfaces. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then we sort of it was it was more we were pushed into the you know the airborne aspect of it and the mask wearing and that sort of stuff That's right. sort of overtook the yeah. surfaces. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute. You were absolutely right, and. Um, we sort of forgot about, you know, the surface situation. I'm sure everyone is still washing their hands. But it's been some big Australian news that's been making headlines around the world this week. And um, it is the CSIRO, our Commonwealth Scientific um, Research Organisation, uh, that has shown that the virus responsible for COVID-19 can last on surfaces a lot longer than we originally thought. So at least... 28 days on many common surfaces. So um, surfaces such as banknotes, both polymer and paper, glass, vinyl and stainless steel. So this is, uh, this sort of shifts, I think, thinking quite a lot. It also, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. Just because it is there doesn't mean it's going to cause disease in us. Um, are, are they, is the reason they tested vinyl, are DJs getting ill from <laughs> handling records or is that, is that Honestly, some... Stu, have you tried to book a DJ recently? <laughs> they are not working right now. I don't know what is going on. I'm, I'm going to ISO discos all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm having a ball. <laughs> Um, vinyl, of, of course, I'm pro- I mean, cause of the vinyl that you play on your record player, but also a lot of phone case, phone sort of like case protectors and are made out of vinyl. So that's specifically why they, why they, um, looked at, looked at vinyl. Uh, then a lot of like, um, surfaces around homes, uh, and, uh, in public transport is vinyl as well. So it's not just the record playing vinyl. I guess. But if you want to scratch, I guess floor co- floor coverings. Yeah, and, yeah. But if you want to scratch it yeah, up, yeah, yeah. then make sure you sanitize your hands before and afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so today I'm going to delve into this research a little bit more. Give us a bit more of a an overview of what it actually is. So the research paper is called "The Effect of Temperature on Persistence of SARS-CoV-2 on Common Surfaces." published uh, in the journal Virology this week um, and comes from, yes, CSIRO, like I said, but it's the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness, which is the one that is in Geelong. Now, the aim of the paper is to standardise exactly how long the disease, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, can survive on different surfaces um, with looking at different temperatures. And like you said before, we we know a lot more than we did six months ago in terms of transmission about of this disease, but we don't yet know enough. What we have been thinking about a lot is that um, COVID-19 seems to be transmitted via aerosols, hence why masks have become so important and social distancing is so important as well. But if we are to really look at, at the transmission um, of COVID-19 through surfaces, we need to get a good understanding of how long it can survive on surfaces in in the first place. So yeah, this research group looked at materials 
Um, we see a lot in our everyday lives. So like I said before, the glass and the vinyl, specifically looking at mobile phones and touch screens and screen protectors is really important for that. They also looked at stainless steel because it's, um, you know, everywhere. It's on bench tops. It's in public areas. They also looked at polymer and paper banknotes um, to see whether, you know, banknotes being something that passes from person to person to person. You want to know if that is going to be a potential transmission line. Um, and then they also looked as, at cotton, which is the only porous material that they looked at. So they looked at a whole bunch of non-porous materials, but then specifically they looked at cotton as a porous material, which I think is quite important, you know, especially if you're looking at reusable masks. Yeah, so what they did, the researchers took active SARS-CoV-2 um, and diluted it down to what they would expect a highly contagious person would be giving off and then put it into this like artificial mucus. So they pretty much like just in the lab, um, just sort of replicated, you know, what a sneezy mucus gross um, COVID-19 um, infected person would, would, would be sneezing what? out and then... What what a great job! What a great job! It's like, oh, what what did you do at work today, honey? Oh, I was just making artificial mucus to uh, to spread around oh, the lab. I know, um, great fun. And then spreading it around. Imagine spreading that around all of the surfaces. I mean, hats off to the researchers who did this. Like, not only are they putting their life on the line with dealing with, you know, COVID nineteen live. Um, and and certainly infectious COVID nineteen, but they also have to deal with with mucus, well, artificial mucus. Anyway, um, so then they they set up a consistent humidity, so they made sure that the humidity was at fifty percent, um, and then then put uh, the COVID nineteen uh, the SARS CoV two infected little plates in three different temperatures. So there was a twenty degrees, a thirty degrees, and a forty degrees. They then went and tested to see if the um, SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 uh, virus was there an hour later, a day later, three days later, um, a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, and then four weeks later after they'd sort of inoculated it. Interestingly, one thing the researchers um, made sure to do was keep their samples in the dark. So this was to stop the virus being killed by sunlight or any other light. As we know, UV light kills the virus. Um, it's not something that you can put inside your body, as we know, but, um, but, but it, is, it is quite, quite helpful, um, you know, to be like airing out your face masks once you've washed them and, and whatnot. Yeah, you've got, you've got a lot bigger problems if there's UV getting inside your body. Let's, let's be clear about let's that. Let's be very clear about that. <laughs> Now, what they found was really interesting. So at 20 degrees Celsius, infectious SARS-CoV-2 was still detectable after 28 days for all of the non-porous surfaces. This included the glass, the polymer note, the stainless steel, the vinyl, and the paper notes. I think it's appropriate here to note that 28 days was their upper limit of the testing. So there was no further testing after this. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, maybe we need to get some clarification around this, but that suggests to me that, you know, you can say that COVID-19 viral particles can exist on surfaces for at least 28 days, 
not up to 28 days. From what I read of the brief reading I saw of the research, they they did say that even though the virus was um, viable, that it was unlikely to infect anyone at that point at the 28-day mark. So that's kind of why they right. stopped. Right, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Um, I'm just being pedantic here. Uh, the other thing, yeah, the SARS-CoV-2 virus was found on on cotton after 14 days of sampling, but not after that. So that's still two weeks of active virus being found on cotton. And when you think about that, yeah, like in the, in the context of face masks, um, it is a sobering reminder, you know, if you are using face masks uh, when you're going outside, when you're going to high-risk areas, when, when you can't social distance, to always only wear your mask once before putting it straight into the washing machine, uh, clean, cleaning it on a hot cycle and, yeah, drying it outside under the uh, UV rays of the sun as well is just for that extra precaution. Uh, so, yeah, this is all really super important research um, and thinking about it in the context of what else we know and what we don't know about COVID-19 transmission. It's, it's, it is a piece of the puzzle, but it isn't, you know, it, it isn't the whole puzzle. We have a bit to go yet. Um, we don't yet know how much transmission happens via surfaces. We don't know how much surface contact needs to happen to get the virus and we don't know what the amount of virus you need to to touch to infect someone as well so there's you know there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle missing but this is certainly a really bit really interesting and and an important thing to know and certainly you know by by knowing that the virus can stick around for weeks and weeks at these lower temperatures on these non-porous surfaces we can hopefully reduce the risk even more so one place where i'm sure this advice is going to come in handy is food processing plants which you know need to be quite cold and they're covered in these you know non-porous materials and we've seen a lot of outbreaks across the world in food processing plants so so you know upping upping the ante in terms of sterilization um around food processing plants to make sure you know we're taking into account that those four weeks of of potential COVID-19 transmission I think is going to be really important moving forward so um, yeah hats off to the research scientists down in Geelong doing the hard yards with COVID-19 and I look forward to, to reading about the next piece of the puzzle. have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are lostinscience1. 
or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week, wherever you find us, when Stu, Claire and Chris get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.